Baptist Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. It is so glad to have you, so glad to be back this week. Um, episode I recorded last week had to do with law and gospel in preparation for the Law and Gospel Conference this week. Uh, but this episode, I thought I'd take some time to talk about uh, not just Baptist two-kingdom theology. When, you, when, <clears throat> when you're talking about two-kingdom theology, first of all, it, it falls within the sphere or, or the realm of political theology. So, uh, you know, this is not a place that, you know, it would, it would probably be uh, good to focus in on in your church during sermons and things like that. Um, po- political theology by itself can tend to be uh, quite dry uh, and 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 will leave a, a congregation or uh, a Christian wanting for uh, really the uh, full spiritual meal that they need week in and week out. Uh, if you're concentrating on politics all of the time and, and how governments ought to function, then uh, you're going to find out that in the grand scheme of things and, and in the long term, you're going to grow probably quite exhausted spiritually. Um, I like political theology to the extent that it shows us what not to long for and, uh, and what not to hope in. Um, it's kind of like one of those deals where, you know, one of the it's, it's really neat to learn about the angels. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Dolezal just taught a class at IRBS that I was not able to get in on. I <laughs> regret not being able to. I would have loved to sit uh, through that class and, and to have been involved in the coursework. Uh, maybe maybe he'll teach it again. Who knows? But, uh, but one of the functions of angelology and one of the ways that it benefits Christians, you know, is... It shows you what God is not. Uh, if you know what an angel is, then you're less likely to think of God in the same way. You know, uh, and a lot of our contemporary theology proper seems to really predicate all the same things of God that you could safely predicate of angels. So it's it's helpful to know what God isn't. Um, and in this case, you know, when you're looking at political theology, a la the temporal sphere here, the uh, the world that's fading and, and and so on, what what you get to understand and what you realize, and there's a glimpse of this in, in the Second London Confession as well, we'll look at here in a moment, but what you begin to realize is like, I can't have my hope here. Uh, and, and even in contemporary, uh, you know, political discourse and uh, political theological discourse, you, if you're involved in any measure of that, I think it's, I think it's safe to say that you've you've probably realized by now that you know it's it's a never-ending carousel. There are always going to be problems in this world to to be dealt with, and and there's never going to be a quick trigger solution to those problems, and there's never going to be a political structure that's going to uh, actually fully and finally s- uh, solve those problems. Um, and so what I would like to do here is is talk about the two kingdoms of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, to start off, and, and by the way, the, the, uh, the chapter on the civil magistrate is going to be very important for us here in this, in this episode, uh, which is chapter 24 of the Second London Confession. But to start us off, let's just say that the, the chapter on the civil magistrate is by no means exhaustive. 
and it's not presented in all that much detail. Now, I think there are for, there are reasons for that. Um, part of the reason, perhaps, is is the great array of diversity in political thought during the 17th century in in England. Uh, we have to remember that England is a country that has been uh, cursed uh, with political upheaval uh, throughout the duration of its of its existence. Um, and uh, even after, you know, the kingdom was united, uh, it, it, was, it was soon thereafter that it, it, it experienced uh, much political trauma. And when you get up to the 17th century, uh, it, it's, it, it's at somewhat of a fever pitch in terms of instability and political changes that had taken place. And so there's, there's a lot of, of, of historical background to chapter 24 of the Confession. Um, and so there would have been, you know, various different opinions, uh, and there would have been instances in which uh, the political thought, perhaps on the side of Baptists and Congregationalists, wasn't 100 <coughs> uh, percent thought out, or maybe I shouldn't say it wasn't 100 percent thought out, but rather it was thought uh, it was thought about to the extent uh, the culture made it necessary or the society made it necessary to consider it. But ultimately, I think the the brevity of the chapter and the uh, intentional ambiguity of the chapter uh, is really a, a result of the simplicity of Scripture on the matter. Um, it, it it really just repeats the scriptural data. It doesn't try to build up a, uh, th- uh, a political theological structure, uh, a particular form of government that needs to be followed. It doesn't. It doesn't obligate the Christian by way of binding the Christian's conscience to serving in the political sphere, though it leaves that right calling and um, agreement to do so uh, up to Christian liberty. And so uh, lots of important things to be discussed, uh, of course, with the contemporary conversation, the recent conversation uh, on Christian nationalism. I think it's helpful and, and, and the fact that the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith has, to some extent, been drawn into that discussion. I think it'd be helpful to go over uh, Chapter Twenty Four and kind of some related cognates. Uh, so we'll look at the two kingdoms of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the sixteen seventy seven here, Chapter Twenty Four of the Civil Magistrate. There are only three articles here: Article One, Article Two, Article Three, or paragraphs. Um, the way I have it outlined is Article One is a summary of the doctrine. So there you kind of have a, a, a thesis statement, if you will, uh, a kind of summary statement of the doctrine itself. Article Two, uh, there's uh, what I've called the material involvement of Christians in government. And the reason I call it a material involvement of Christians in government is because uh, the formal purpose of a Christian being a Christian is not to be involved in the civil magistrate. However, uh, it is a... Uh, a particular area, a, 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 a sphere, if you will, uh, wherein the Christian has the freedom to be involved. And if they are involved, there are certain material interests that a Christian would have on the basis of being a Christian in terms of carrying out the office of the civil magistrate. And we'll look at those here in a moment. And then Article 3, of course, is uh, the... Uh, the qualified, I said the qualified Christian submission to the civil magistrate, and we'll look at the reason it's qualified here in a moment, but if we just look at Article 1, 
Article 1 is uh, the summary of the doctrine, uh, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good, and to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good, and for the punishment of evildoers. Romans 13, 1 through 4 is what it cites, a very popular passage that has to do with the sword of government, um, the punishment of evildoers, and the upholding of the good there in Romans 13. Uh, but you'll notice in that paragraph that there are basically three things. You have the power of government, which is from God. That's Romans 13, 1. Um, and then you have uh, the fact that the the power of government is... There's an implication here, and that is that the power of government is distinct from the power of the ecclesiological power of the church. And the reason it's distinct from the ecclesiological power of the church is that this power is oriented or ordered to not only God's glory, but the public good. All right. And and by public, it has in mind the general populace. Um, and so the gen it has the, the the purpose of the the civil magistrate carrying out the office is for the public good of the citizenry, of the populace that lives in that particular kingdom or commonwealth. Um, you can put that with Article 2, jumping forward here for a moment. Article 2, uh, where the magistrate's govern according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. So there's a obviously an implied distinction between uh, earthly political government and the government of the church. When you flip over two chapters to chapter 26, you don't read uh, anything of the sort regarding the kingdom uh, of heaven or the kingdom of God, which is identified with the uh, invisible church in chapter 26. Um, but here you have uh, an interest in the general good, uh, an interest in the, the good of the populace. You have a an interest in upholding the wholesome laws of various kingdoms and commonwealths. All right. And, um, and it's, a, it's a power that, like ecclesiastical powers, uh, is to glorify God. But it's a, it's a power that's to glorify God in a particular or distinct manner from that of ecclesiastical powers. So whenever you hear people talk about two kingdoms, they're not talking about two kingdoms that are under the power of two different masters or two different sovereigns. Uh, they're talking rather, when you hear people use the word two kingdom, usually uh, what's being referred to there are two domains or two kingdoms which fall under the sovereign rule of God, but are yet directed to two distinct ends and are governed according to two distinct forms. Okay, so uh, that's why they're two kingdoms. Uh, one sovereign, two kingdoms. There are human examples of this, by the way. There are plenty of examples throughout history where you have... Uh, and this happened in England's history as well, where you have uh, a king that is a king of two kingdoms at once. All right. So in 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 so, at some points in history, this happened in the Middle East. It happened in continental Europe. It happened between continental Europe and England. Uh, you think about all of the overlapping royalty between Germany, France, and England. And all of the overlapping and kind of simultaneous authority that was going on in history following about the uh, um, 
first century, or let's see, about the 11th century, uh, especially where you have, you know, uh, William the Conqueror, who's coming from Normandy and is laying cr- uh, claim to the to the crown and eventually takes the crown. And, uh, and, and so there's all sorts of ex- human examples where a single king will rule over two uh, distinct domains. And those domains will be, uh, in some ways, they'll be ruled distinctly, even though they're ruled by the same king, and they'll, they'll be ruled distinctly in terms of their economy. They may have differing currencies. Uh, they may have uh, different ways in which uh, they serve the single king, and so on and so forth. There are definite differences there, but there are human examples of this. And so it's it's no wonder to think that, you know, God uh, rules is a single king ruling two kingdoms, uh, but these two kingdoms are nevertheless considered distinct kingdoms because their final and formal causes are distinct, even though their efficient cause is the same, the, the one king. Um, so you can think of it in terms of uh, of uh, of, of that way, um, and hopefully that's a helpful way to consider it. Um, so that's what you have basically in Article 1. It's just a summary of the doctrine, and really when we get to Article 2, uh, you start to see some, some nuances and some things that'll really help you understand what's going on in the minds of the framers of the Second London Confession of Faith, um, I, I will say at this point that Dr. James Renahan has some very helpful historical details in his chapter on chapter 24 of the Confession in his most recent book, uh, and I'll hold it up here, To the Judicious and Impartial Reader. If you haven't gotten a copy of that yet, uh, please do so. It's looking like uh, that, uh, um, that IRBS will have a table. Uh, Brent Ward uh, will hopefully be able to uh, facilitate that. And it's possible that I can get him to bring some copies of this for purchase. If you do come to that August conference at Victory Baptist Church, again, it's a free conference. Dr. James Renahan is speaking, as well as Dr. Sam Renahan and Steve Meister, Pastor Steve Meister from IBC Sacramento. Okay, enough plugging the conference. Article 2, the material involvement of Christians in government. Now, why do I say the material involvement? Let me appeal to an example. All right, so when we're talking about the sciences, by the way, you know, usually when elementary school curriculum just says we're, le- we're learning science today, it's a misnomer to reduce all science to a single science. Uh, usually we think of archaeology, biology, and, and so on and so forth. We include all those within the one heading of science. Um, that's kind of a product of our modernistic and reductionistic way of thinking. Um Historically, the sciences have been carefully distinguished according to their principles, uh, according to their uh, their forms, according to their final causes or their various ends, um, and of course their their formal objects. Okay, so when you're looking at uh, the science of theology, we would want to say that the formal object of theology is God and all things in relation to God, but especially God. Theology has been taken to mean in the past uh, a, a particular concern with theology proper, and then the study of everything else in relation to God is the study of the economy, or oikonomia, if I could pronounce that Greek word. Um, so the formal object of theology, which is a science, 
is God and all things in relation to God. The formal object of philosophy, which is a distinct science, but nevertheless, the formal object of philosophy would be being qua being, which is the subject matter of metaphysics. All right, that's the formal object of philosophy. When you're talking about the, what's the formal object of, you know, a lesser uh, uh, science having to do with the, the physical world, uh, the formal object of biology, for example, the formal object of biology would be biological life forms, right? And everything that has to do with that. And of course, that would be further um, bifurcated, distinguished um, <clears throat> along the lines of a taxonomy that would result in specialties and so on and so forth in the medical field and, and all that. Uh, what's the formal object of geology? Well, it's geological formations, rocks, so on and so forth. Archaeology, it's um, uh, historical discoveries through means of excava excavation, perhaps we could say. I'm not an archaeologist, so I, I don't know. But every science is distinguished in virtue of its formal object. All right. However, you take, you take a science like theology and you think, well, yeah, the formal object of, of theology is God, but there's also all things in relation to God. And, you know, the Bible teaches on creation. The Bible teaches on um, all sorts of things that have to do with our, our lives, our practical lives. There are even some, you know, perhaps some economical principles that you could, you could derive from Scripture with some, with some benefit, uh, principles of stewardship, and so on and so forth. Um, but those things don't necessarily... Uh, constitute a formal object of theology proper, right? I mean, st uh, stewardship is not God, per se, um, but it's something that God has commanded us to do well and to do to his glory. Uh, and so we would say that, you know, in a sort of secondary sense, the science of theology has an interest in things other than God, uh, and the interest is to relate those things other than God to God. But those things other than God, which which theology looks at and which theology has something to say about, is not the formal object of the science. The formal object of the science is God, all right? And we would say the material object of the science, uh, of, of the science of theology, can be other things, right? For example, anthropology, right? A right understanding of man. Uh, now, man is not the formal object object of the science of theology. Uh, otherwise, we would say we'd have a man-centered theology. But does Scripture speak to anthropology? Well, of course. Does theology then touch anthropology? Well, of course it does, but in a material sense. Uh, and it's material in the sense that uh, it, theology speaks to the matter, but other disciplines speak to the matter as well. So, like, there are professional anthropologists right, that study human anthropology. Now, I'm not saying they're correct. I'm not saying they're right. In fact, many times they uh, develop theories that are contrary to the scriptures. But nevertheless, there is a science of anthropology which has a formal object of humanity or of man, all right? And so uh, we make a distinction, a formal distinction amongst the sciences, but we all understand that various sciences have overlap with one another along their material objects, that they speak to the same matters in some cases. And so when we're looking at something like the Christian's responsibility, the Christian's duty, the Christian's calling, we wouldn't say that the formal um, 
object of the Christian's interest, uh, or or maybe make it even more theological and distinctly Christian. We wouldn't say that the that the formal object of the Christian's faith is politics. Uh, nobody I know would say that, not even the ones arguing most strongly for something like Christian nationalism, but we would want to say that uh, theology speaks to the civil realm, right? And every theologian, every Orthodox theologian throughout history has has held to that being the case. And so there's a there's a a sense in which theology speaks to the matter of politics, and and to that extent, the Christian should have a, an interest in it. Uh, it ought not be their whole world. It ought not be their whole focus. But the Christian should have some kind of a working knowledge of how government, the governments of this world, relate to God. Um, and then, furthermore, if a Christian uh, senses it to be his calling to serve in the civil realm as a magistrate, a president king, what have you, uh, and and if the Christian is put into that kind of a position, then as a result of, of there being some material overlap between the, the formal science of politics, political science, and the formal science of theology, the Christian is to occupy that office, that political office, well to the glory of God, not violating their scriptural convictions um, but also being careful not to confuse the tw- the sciences of theology and political science. All right. Okay. Now that that's out of the way, that's why I called this summarize this article two. There's a material involvement of Christians in government. It's the material involvement because there's a a related matter, namely politics or government. Uh, yet it's not the formal interest or the formal object of the Christian's faith. They have the they have the freedom or the liberty to participate in it. Uh, they're not bound from participating in it, which would be some Anabaptist tendencies, uh, historically speaking. They rather have the liberty to participate in it uh, if they are called to do so. Okay, um, so Christians are lawfully uh, eligible to serve within an official state capacity, you know, and, and the reason scripture, I think scripture is rather clear on this, that, you know, it's it's lawful for Christians to serve in the government, it's lawful for them to serve in the military, is because, you know, when John the Baptist commands repentance, and, and he does so to, uh, he, he relates repentance to uh, soldiers, you know, it doesn't say, he doesn't tell them to to leave their posts. He doesn't tell them to, you know, defect. Um, he rather commands them to no longer extort, to no longer abuse their authority. Um, and then furthermore, the apostles, whenever they encountered, by means of the preaching of the gospel, um, you know, uh, converts that were Roman officials, you don't hear the apostles saying, you know, you need to leave your official position as a as a Roman proconsul or whatever, you know, it, it wasn't, it, there was no discussion concerning that. And so, you know, there's, there's no suggestion or hint in scripture that maintaining public office is a sin for a Christian. In fact, it's quite the contrary. There's examples to the opposite. 
you know, the Anabaptists, uh, which I understand is a very broad category, it's difficult to define the Anabaptists because you have kind of some more orthodox Anabaptists that had some relationships to the Reformation through Martin Bootser and others, <coughs> and perhaps Zwingli as well. And then you have another wing of Anabaptists that uh, were not related to the Reformation at all. They were... Uh, they were deviants in several ways, sometimes sexual. Uh, they were just complete heretics with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity or Christology. Uh, and so they were totally left field. They couldn't align whatsoever with anything, much less essential matters, that the Reformation was doing. And so um, you have that kind of wing of the Anabaptists. I'm not necessarily talking about them. I'm talking even about the more moderate Anabaptists that were able to somewhat associate with the Reformation, it seems like there was some kind of an allergy to the world, uh, which which kind of caused them to see all secular affairs as, as negative, non-spiritual affairs. And so the Anabaptists seem to generally forbid state service. Uh, and I, I, I think, yeah, I take that to be more of a Gnostic tendency, you know, oh, the world is is bad, worldly institutions are bad, the only sanctioned institution that the Lord has sanctioned through his word is the church, and so on and so forth, which we know, of course, is 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 not correct. Um, if you take Romans 13, for example, to be a sanctioning of civil government, uh, then it would seem that the Christian has every right and every liberty to serve in the civil government. But they typically had a very downcast view of secular affairs. Uh, all that stuff was generally seen as worldly, uh, from currency to military service. Uh, and again, it's a very broad spectrum as to what each and every Anabaptist and each and every Anabaptist group believed, uh, but it seems to be the case that there was kind of a general allergy to secular affairs. Uh, that's not what the Second London Confession advertises or teaches, and uh and that's significant because you're talking about a group of Christians here drafting this and 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 um, adopting this, who were often accused of being Anabaptists. And this is just another place, chapter 24, you know, is just another place where they distinguish themselves from Anabaptists and kind of uh, e evade the validity of that charge. Uh, and in the very beginning, you know, in the preface to the confession. Uh, the framers deny that they are Anabaptists. They identify themselves with uh, the Protestant way and so distance themselves from various Anabaptist aberrations that way, uh, clearing themselves of that charge. The other thing about Article 2 is, you know, uh, it says, you know, basically teaches that Christians ought to maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. If you look at the whole, I don't think I did this, but if you look at the whole paragraph, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain, as they ought especially. In other words, Christians especially, out of any group of people or any segment of people in the society, Christian servants to... Uh, to the civil realm, especially acting in the capacity of a magistrate, ought to especially, given the fact they're Christians, maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and and commonwealth. I think that's very helpful language there. Um, 
one of the things that it does is it assumes that there are laws that are already in place when this Christian comes to hold the office of magistrate. Uh, you know, for the framers of the confession, wholesome laws were natural laws. They were laws that were revealed and perceivable through nature. They're also codified in the Ten Commandments, but they exist and are proclaimed by both the book of nature and the book of Scripture, to use Calvin's language. And so, uh, you know, uh, natural law takes its principles from the good, right? The transcendental, the good. What is what is good for the people? Now, you have governments, uh, of course, make make gross mistakes when answering that question. Some governments think that it's best for their people if they are micromanagers and tyrannical monsters, and and perhaps they think it's best for themselves to operate that way because they can amass wealth, uh, you know, ensure the longevity of their family legacy, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's all sorts of perversions of the transcendental good that governments have uh, committed in the past. And we see that, we understand that. We live in a world of sin, and that's to be expected. If you were to say, you know, Christians should, uh, you know, or, or not Christians, but governments should stop operating off a of natural law and instead make positive laws and scripture, covenant laws and scripture, the standard of the land, well, you're going to you're gonna run into the same problem that you do with natural law. You're going to run into interpretive issues. You're going to run into misuses of various biblical texts and various biblical laws. The, the, the problem isn't, isn't solved just by switching authorities. All right, so God has ordained one authority through nature and another authority through scripture. Scripture reveals more to us than nature does. Um, but both of those uh, avenues of knowledge come from God. And so we have to understand that, that both of those a- avenues of knowledge are credible, having come, in from, come, come from him. If we say they're not, if we say that you know natural, theolo- natural revelation is you know, itself uh, not just inadequate or insufficient, which it is with, with relation to the gospel, it doesn't teach the gospel, it can't save anybody, but if we say that it's defective— you know, we're, we're, we're impugning God with some kind of uh, defect. And, and so we have to understand that, you know, both special revelation and natural revelation are equally valid sources of knowledge. The question just becomes, okay, what does either teach and what's the extent of either one? Because special revelation is going to second, you know, things that you can know through nature, but it's also going to teach us and take us beyond what we can know through nature. It's going to take us uh, to the articles of faith you know, Trinity, Incarnation, the Gospel, and and so on. And so just because you say, well, uh, governments are on more sure footing if they switch from natural natural revelation to special revelation, well, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you, you come to the moral law in Exodus 20, and you're going to have disagreements right off the bat about the Second Commandment. You're going to have disagreements right off the... Um, um, and, I, and I mean disagreements amongst jurists. Let's just suggest that this happens at some point in time in the future. Where, you know, you do have a country that says, okay, we're going to use biblical law. You're going to have all the same questions arise while looking at scripture as you would while formulating laws from, you know, the common notions of nature. 
And so that, that, that problem doesn't go away. Because once you switch over to Scripture, you're going to say, uh, you know, in Scripture, by the way, seconding the natural law in, in the moral law or the Decalogue, you're still going to have debates about that. Even among sanctified brethren, you're going to have debates about the meaning of uh, commandments, various commandments, the extent to which they ought to be applied in society, uh, whether the first table should be enforced and the second table or just the second table, uh, what, how to apply the Sabbath principle in the fourth commandment, uh, what does the tenth commandment look applied in society, the law against covetousness, and so on and so forth. And of course, you have guys today who are saying, well, that's all, you know, we'll all we can talk about those things. Well, yeah, but when it comes right down to it and it comes to talking about those things, you're going to have profound disagreements that are going to result in people not being able to carry on fellowship uh, in, in a political in a political sense. And so the same problem, you know, arises. Um, but one of the things that Article 2 does is it it implies that the Christian serving as magistrate is to serve their kingdom or commonwealth by upholding the wholesome laws, which are, are, are of course, already there by the time the Christian gets there, it's supposed. And, of course, if they're not, and the Christian then serves as magistrate, that's what's interesting is the confession is actually silent on that. So they're gonna, they're, there are going to be uh, differing opinions as to how to... Uh, prudently approach a failed government, a failed state, a completely immoral and corrupt government. If a Christian happens to work his or her way into that position, how uh, whiz, how the knowledge of moral or ethical truth would be prudently apl- applied in that situation is not drawn out in any sort of scientific detail in the confession it, because it's a case-by-case basis. And so there's no like structure, here's what you do, here's what you implement when you walk into a situation like that. Uphold the wholesome laws, you know, encourage the good and punish the evil. And so they need to be asking, well, what's what's good for the people? And then answering that question uh, based on the objective good, right? The objective good uh, that is uh, is is evident to all people through what has been made. Of course, it's codified in Scripture, but it's not as if you know anything other than the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments need to be um, uh, need to be discussed with relation to civil uh, politics. Uh, the the other thing that Article Number Two does is it it assumes that there are distinct kingdoms from the kingdom, quote-unquote, mentioned in verse 26, or not verse 26, but chapter 26. In chapter 26, you have a lengthy chapter on the church, and in uh, in chapter 26, article 3, it says, The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ hath always hath had... And ever shall have a kingdom, a kingdom in this world. It seems to identify it with the universal or the Catholic Church, which is often called invisible uh, in Article One. Uh, so, in other words, the kingdom is being uh, is being identified with the people of faith um, that currently exist in this world. That's that's the kingdom that's spoken of. Seems to be spoken of in Article Three. That is diverse or distinct from the kingdoms. And the Commonwealths mentioned in chapter 24. And so sometimes when you're engaging something like theonomy, 
general equity or otherwise, uh, you'll hear people talk about, you know, there's only one kingdom, uh, there aren't two kingdoms, uh, and, uh, and, and they'll, and they'll also say, well, I subscribe to the Second London Confession of Faith. Uh, the, the Second London makes an obvious distinction between kingdoms. Uh, there is a realm where earthly kingdoms and commonwealths exist and where they are governed according to wholesome laws by civil magistrates. And then there's a realm uh, where, as overlapping as these realms often are, there's also a realm where people believe unto the salvation of their souls. Yes, they live in this world. Now there's material overlap. We talk about that material overlap. Uh, nevertheless, they are a distinct kingdom. Uh, the, the spiritual government of the church is distinct from uh, the civil government of the of earthly kingdoms and commonwealths. And so that distinction is in the confession. It's clear as day. And I think that distinction is in the scriptures as well. Um, uh, between where uh, our Lord uh, assigns the keys of heaven, the keys to the kingdom of heaven to the church, and and then we see in Romans 13, the sword is assigned to the state. I think those are two uh, formal differences uh, that constitute two distinct kingdoms or two distinct domains that are ruled according to distinct orders, all under the sovereign authority and power of God. Okay, so that's, in a nutshell, that's, that's, that's Article 2. I will note that the kingdoms and the commonwealths are not characterized in the confession as consisting in those who believe in Christ. So that's a very important uh, observation to be made as well. So these kingdoms and commonwealths are places in which all walks of people live, believers and unbelievers, and yet they're to be governed according to wholesome laws. That means that these kingdoms are not to be structured according to articles of faith, things which uh, you know, must be believed on by faith in order to be apprehended properly. For example, the fact that Scripture is the Word of God and is the chiefest authority, that is that is something only Christians believe, uh, properly at least, or consistently at least. You know, there may be others that will say that the Scriptures are the Word of God, but yet they're, they're, they're seen to be rejecting the gospel or, or something like that, or adding authorities to it for religious significance and so on. And, uh, and and really, the fact that Scripture is the Word of God is an article of faith of the Christian religion. And so, you know, you can't legislate that because it's to be received by faith. It can't be received by coercion, uh, compulsion, uh, and it can't be received by naked reason. All right, so uh, that's something that needs to be observed as well. And then, of course, at the end of paragraph two, let me get back over there to chapter 24, you have the just war clause at the end, just clarifying, and again, I think responding in large part to Anabaptist aberrations. And of course, there was a Quaker influence as well. Uh, the, uh, the, cl the clause at the end of article two is, so for that end, they may now, or they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasion. Now, that's talking about a Christian. Can a Christian in good conscience wage war if they need to? You know, you think about Oliver Cromwell, who's a Christian. Was Oliver Cromwell justified in waging war? Now, some might disagree, and there's a big debate as to whether or not he did the right things in war, and so on and so forth. But was he justified 
in waging war, should there have been a just reason to go to war? And the answer is yes, right? There's not this unqualified uh, stricture against waging war no matter what, as there were in some Anabaptist groups and amongst the Quakers. Article 3 says, Civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, subjection and all lawful things commanded by them, ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, not only for wrath, but for conscience' sake. And we ought to make supplications and prayers for kings and all that are in authority, that under them we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Of course, there you have the subjection uh, in all lawful things commanded by magistrates. Now, the reason I call this article Christian Qualified Submission to the Civil Magistrate is because that's the qualification. A civil magistrate cannot make you do that which is not scriptural. Uh, a, a civil magistrate cannot uh, bind your conscience such that it would be sin for you to do this or that. That's why liberty is so important, and that's why actually our constitutional liberties in this country are so important, is because they they allow this Christian liberty to be consistently observed um, amongst churches throughout this country. Uh, and so we're to be in subjection to the government, but we're not to be in blind subjection to it, and and we're in sub subjection to it insofar as, as their commandments are lawful, their laws are lawful. Um, obedience to the state ought to be yielded, not for the state's own sake per se, but in the Lord, right? So this is a way in which we glorify God. We're not obeying the state because we always like the state, and we're big fans of the state, and we love the state, and so on and so forth, but we're obeying the state to glorify God. We're adorning the gospel um, in not causing a ruckus, not causing disruption, uh, not unnecessarily protesting or rebelling or anything of the sort. We're submitting in the Lord, not only for wrath, the confession says, but for conscience sake as well. And then, of course, prayer ought to be offered to God for kings and all in authority. And that's something that I think that we often <coughs> overlook in terms of how polarized and and frustrated we get in this country about politics. Uh, you know, I am not a, 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 a Biden person at all. Uh, in fact, I think it's a sin at this point to vote Democrat. It is a sin to vote Democrat, especially if... Democrats uh, have on their ticket and as part of their policy advertisement support for things like abortion, the LGBTQ, etc. scheme, and so on and so forth. It would be a sin to cast a vote uh, to that side. However, should we still pray for uh, someone like Joe Biden? Uh, I think we ought to pray that the Lord would, would humble our leadership, would draw our leadership to Christ, but even just pray that uh, in God's common grace that rationale would be restored, um, you know, uh, that uh, an, an attentiveness to um, natural goods and, um, and common sense would be restored, and so on. So we are to pray for those in authorities, that under them we may live a peaceable life, in all godliness and honesty. Hopefully this was helpful in kind of like parsing some political issues. Uh, it's the two kingdoms of the Second London Confession. Again, I've, I've pointed out how 
you can see those two kingdoms in the confession. Uh, the distinctions are there. I, I think the distinctions are in Scripture as well. Um, but I think it's very important that we understand that the Second London Confession is not a document that supports any sort of, uh, you know, monocovenantalism or singular understanding of the kingdom such that everything kind of gets blended into uh, the kingdom of God and, and, and all expressions of civil good and so forth are expressions of the kingdom of God. I think what that does is it completely destroys the distinctiveness and the identity of the kingdom of God as something germane and, and distinct to uh, the church in this world. And so uh, hopefully this was, uh, this was helpful, even if you disagree, to, to kind of just process and, and think about these things. If it was, give a thumbs up. You know, subscribe to the channel. Don't forget to do that. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your day.